And this morning we have Alan Mitchell coming to speak with us. Alan spoke with us briefly a few weeks ago, uh, so some of you may recognize him when he comes. But today he'll be bringing our message today. And Alan is, um, has a ministry over in, over in the, that focuses on college students. And he's over at NC State uh, working with college students there. It's called Every Nation. And he is uh, in the process of outreaching to college students, uh, encouraging them, encouraging them to share their faith and just working with them in a very tough time in their life as colleges, uh, just so many things pulling at uh, our, our students that are there. So we're thankful for Alan and the work he's doing, and he's going to come this morning and share with us as soon as Sarah finishes singing. So we welcome him, and thank you for the time that we have together with him, and we just pray for God to work through him and Pastor Jerry this morning as they preach uh, and bring his message. Let's pray together. Hello, hello. Is that too loud? Not loud enough. Good. Okay, great. How you guys doing? Awesome. That was wonderful, wasn't it? Gosh. Yeah, I was like, I can't cry now. I'm going to have to speak in like three seconds, so I'm going to have to hold back. Because, you know, when someone's worshiping, you want to join in, right? Like, you want to you wanna go where they're going. You're like, gosh, I, I could see what God's doing with her. I can see her Christ being lifted up in her heart, and I want to join her. It's tough, you know? It's tough. It's a beautiful song. Beautiful song. Well, my name is Alan uh, Mitchell. I am from Currituck County, which is underwater right now, um, and so uh, I think they'll be all right, though. But um, for the next six and a half hours, what I want to talk to you guys this morning about <laughs> is hope. I see you guys are hoping to get out of here before 12. It's just not going to happen. So, But we are going to talk about hope this morning, hope, all right? Now, hope is one of those things that um, makes you alive, makes you alive. Right? It makes you, makes you excited. Right? If I told my kids, for instance, we're going to Disney World, they would be incredibly excited, right? unless they don't know what that is. Like I remember um, one time we were going to do something fun. Uh, I can't remember exactly. It was some, some kind of thing. I knew my, my kid would have a blast. I think it was like a movie or something. And he was like, I don't want to go see that movie. I've never seen a movie. I don't want to go see it. And then he found out what it was, and now every time he just loses his mind when we're going to go see a cartoon in the movie theater. So... Um, but anyways, let me pray, and then we'll jump into this. Lord, thank you, God, for your love for us. God, thank you so much for all that you've given us. You've given us a hope, Lord, that'll go on and on and on forever. You've given us a hope that never runs out, Lord. And so I just pray this morning you would make that real to all of our hearts, that we would taste it this morning. We wouldn't just know more about it. We wouldn't just leave here with more information, but we would leave here changed by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, yeah, so hope, hope is one of those things that makes you come alive. It makes you a joy to be around. You know, a hopeless person is not much fun, right? Like if the person sitting beside you this morning is hopeless, it's, like, it's not like you want to hang out with that person, right? You might be thinking that right now. Yeah, the person sitting beside me, not, not a lot of fun. Maybe that explains it. You know, we, for instance, are about to have baby number four, right? And some people say... You know, is that a, is that, is that a game changer? Because this one's going to be a girl, right? It's a first girl, yeah? little applause, all right, we'll take it. Um, sympathy applause uh, for four kids. And so um, we, uh, some people say, is it a game changer? I'm like, no, it's a game ender. Hopefully this is the last one. Hopefully it's over. Lord, please <laughs> hear my prayers. <laughs> Um, but yes, so hope is a powerful thing. It makes you passionate. It can make you change the world, change your community. Hope is the person, here's the definition of hope. Hope is the person 
or thing in which you center your expectations of the future on. Hope is the thing in which you center your expectations of the future on. And so what I want to talk this morning specifically, there's a ton of stuff we could say about hope, but a couple things this morning I want to talk about, and that's primarily the tension of hope. The tension of hope. Everybody say tension. Tension of hope, okay? What is the tension of hope? Well, we've all experienced this, right? You're either going to face this tension, you are facing it, or you have faced it, and this is the tension. How do we maintain hope? In a world that seems so hopelessly broken at times. How do we maintain hope in a world that seems so hopelessly broken at times? And you felt this tension before, for instance, maybe in a job. If you've ever had a job in here, right? And, that, and, and someone said, okay, if you do X, Y, and Z, you'll move up in this job, right? And you put hope on that. Like, yeah, one day I'm going to get promoted. It's going to be great. And maybe the person didn't come through. So you're feeling sort of hopeless about that job. Or maybe, um, if you're incredibly young, you had graduation hope, right? You graduated college, you thought you were going to come out and have your dream job, or you are going to be a teacher at a school, and you thought this is going to be great, and then you got in there and it it wasn't anything like you thought. Or you came out like I did with a philosophy degree, which puts you at Starbucks. Um, (laughs) And so, with my art major history friends there, so we, there's a lot of very thoughtful people at Starbucks. Um, or maybe you had a dream, like my dream's going to be great, it's going to be amazing, right? And maybe you're like Tom Brady. After his third Super Bowl win, they interviewed him, they said, what was it like to win your third Super Bowl? And he said, <laughs> this is two weeks afterwards, he says, I, I just thought, honestly, there'd be more. <laughs> and so I, maybe that's been something, you, you tried to accomplish a dream, and then after it was all said and done, it was just... What was the point of this? It's not actually giving me what I want. Or maybe you had a relationship hope. Maybe, you know, you got married, and you hoped it would work out, and you thought, till death do us part, that's where I'm, I'm here for that. And then the person was only there until maybe they found someone else. You know, maybe you, that's the kind of hopelessness. We had hope in a relationship, or maybe you lost someone. You thought they'd be around forever, and there's a, there's a brokenness. There's a hopelessly brokenness about that, because... And maybe now you're sort of questioning whether you should have hope at all, whether you should have hope in relationships at all. Or maybe you had hope in your kids or grandkids. You, you hope that they would turn out to be something different than they are. And now you're looking around thinking, well, you know, it's just, they're just broken and the world's broken. And what's the point of hoping that anything good happens? I had this great hope in my kids and it didn't happen. Or hope in the one and you're still looking, you know, or hope in our city or campus or country or elections, you know, maybe you had hope there and you're looking at this situation, you're thinking that's hopeless, it's hopeless, and so I know sometimes I really sense this when I get on Google News, it seems like it's every day something like this, like for instance recently on Google News, um, there was a six-year-old who was um, shot in a, uh, at a school, an elementary school, just senseless, he had nothing to do with what was going on and just was killed. That's incredibly hopeless. You felt that tension when you read that article and you thought, I can't do anything about this. This world is hopelessly broken. Or with some of the the Facebook shootings we saw this summer, and you see innocent people killed, and you're thinking, this is hopeless. This is hopelessly broken. 
look how terrible this is, terrible the world is, and you're in a situation where you're like, how do I maintain hope in a world that seems so hopelessly broken? So why, and what happens when you get hopeless is you go, you think, why go on? What's the point? Why show up at all? What's the point of caring about people or loving people? What's the point of community? It doesn't really mean anything, and then apathy sort of sets in. And apathy is one of the fruits of hopelessness. So how do we maintain hope in a world that seems so hopelessly broken? All right, well, there's a few responses that we tend to have in our culture. And one of the, the first responses is this, is that we have tremendous hope in our society, that, we'll, we'll, that there is, the world isn't that broken, and we can, we can progress out of it. We can get out of it. So you get slogans like, yes, we can, or it gets better, or those kind of things. And so what we think is, it's just going to get better. Things are going to get good. It's going to be all right. Um, this, this sort of thinking that society, that human in, in, uh, in intervention, not interventions, inventions, technology, is going to solve our problems, didn't work out um, really well. And we'll talk about that. But it, it came out of this, that whole idea that society is going to be okay, that everything's going to progress, that we can overcome these external obstacles, came from the um, 1800s. And in the 1800s, there's this movement of positivism, right, where we said we can take technology and we can change our outward, uh, out, um, outward circumstances and we can make a better life for ourselves. And technology can lead us to be incredible people. And Aldous Huxley, who's a famous historian, does anybody know what Aldous Huxley wrote, his famous book? Brave New World over here, that's right. All right, so that he wrote that, and, um, and he's a, he was one of the, the forethinkers of the early 20th century, and he said this. He was su- super excited about humans, and he said, we're going to progress. We're going to do awesome things. Not exactly those words, but he said this. He said, can we doubt that presently our race will more than realize our boldest imagination? So he, was, he believed in positivism. He says, we can do it. And it went on that it will achieve unity and peace, that our children— and their lives in this world will be more splendid and lovely than any garden, than any palace that we know. They're going to go on from strength to strength in an ever-widening circle of adventure and achievement. What man has done, the little triumphs right now, form but the prelude to the things that man has got his going to. You hear what he's saying there? We're going to just get better and better and better and better. Everything is on the way up. And that really helps summarize that whole idea of the 19th century as a society. We can do it. But then, after World War II, he said this. The cold-blooded massacres of the defenseless, the return of the deliberate and organized torture, mental torment, and fear to a world form or from which, which such things had seemed, well, gone. But it hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, it has come near to breaking my spirit altogether. Homo sapiens, which literally means the wise ones, as has he been pleased to call himself, is played out. That's the last thing he wrote, the last things he wrote before he died. So what he did is he put hope in this world. He says, it's not that broken, we can fix it. And after a century of people taking technology and not creating a thousand machines to make peace, but a thousand machines to make war, where in his lifetime penicillin was discovered on accident, or gas chambers were invented on purpose. And he says, in the midst of that, in the midst of that, I walked away and my heart was broken for trusting in human progress. 
And so a lot of times, as we do that now, it's flawed, because what will happen is you will be broken by it. The world is actually hopelessly broken. And so what we did in about 1960s, 50s, there was the shift from look to society to look to yourself. Look to yourself. And this is marked by, you know, basically every PBS special there's ever been. Believe in yourself. You can be anything and achieve your dreams. Unfortunately, you can't be anything, right? I mean, let's just be honest. Like, my, uh, my wife is uh, a very strong woman. And so my son came up to her. <laughs> this is going to be kind of funny. Um, you guys are going to judge us. I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, <laughs> but she, my son came up to her, my oldest son. He's like, I want to be president one day. She just told him straight up. She's like, son, that's just not going to happen. So... <laughs> I mean, it is, I mean, the chances, gosh, how many people get to be president, right? And I was like, well, I don't know, should we, he's only five, maybe he's got a hope or chance, and she's like, no. But we have this sort of idea that we can do it, that you can believe in yourself and achieve your dreams. The problem with this is that our culture, the last 50, 60 years, is people trying to do this. We found out that doesn't seem to be the answer either. Jim Carrey, Jim Carrey famously said, I wish everybody, everybody in this room, everybody in the world, would make all the money they could ever make and achieve all their dreams. This is Jim Carrey. You guys know who that is, right? Okay. And he said, so that you would realize it's not the answer. Here's a man who's achieved his dreams, has all the money in the world, and he's saying, look, it's not the answer. Michael Phelps, after winning, I think, a thousand gold medals or something like that, (laughs) he was depressed. (laughs) You know, he got his dreams, just like Tom Brady. And it's just, I thought there'd be more. Unfortunately, This is what happens to us as we begin to shift inward and say, the way I'm going to get through life, my hope is not out there, it's in here, I'm going to be something great, is turning out to be a bit of a sham too. It'll break our heart eventually too. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, maybe if you're not a Christian in here this morning, you're thinking, why, what do you Christians say about hope? I'm sure your version of hope is what, the the earth explodes one day, right? That sounds great, yeah, let me throw my hope in that. So, and this is a pretty uh, typical religious response to hopelessness. It says hopelessness is real, it doesn't deny it, but then it goes on to say that this world doesn't matter, that all that matters is the next world. This is religion in general, right? That this world's going to blow up one day, it's going to dissipate, and then we're all going to either achieve nirvana or go into some heaven or something like that, and this world's not going to matter at all. The problem with that is is that (laughs) there is a problem with that in the sense that it gives you no real heart here, right? The other one will eventually break your heart, but this idea that the world doesn't matter and what you do right now doesn't really matter will sort of keep you from having a heart. It'll make you apathetic now because it doesn't really matter what I do now. And especially, um, you know, well, I won't say that. All right, so, um, <laughs> uh, so it makes us apathetic now. It makes us have no heart now. So how do we maintain hope right now in a world that seems so hopelessly broken, without having our hearts either continually broken by trusting in the world and saying it's not that hopeless, or saying it is hopeless but in this world doesn't matter, and losing heart. How do we do that? Well, next week we're going to figure that out. So thank you. You guys have been so kind. Um, (laughs) Now, how do we do that? Thankfully, we're not the first people to have a hope crisis, right? Hope crisis. And and we're not the first people. So in um, the book of Hebrews, for instance, is written to a people who feel very apathetic, who are losing hope, right? And they're going through the same stuff that you may have gone through if you've been in church at all for any sort of time. When you become a Christian, 
you think all Christians are like awesome, usually, right? As soon as you become a Christian, you think, oh, they're so much, they're going to be so much different than all the friends I've ever had before. They're going to be there for me. They're going to have warm community and fellowship, and they're not going to be uh, judgmental and self-righteous and all this. And then you get into a church situation, and your dreams are crushed, right? Six months to a year later, you're looking around like, these people, these are the ones, you know? And, and what's happened, the funny thing about churches, again, I'm a Christian, so this is, applies to me, is that the churches are like, we get all the broken people in the world in one room, right? And so I'm broken, I need help, that's why I'm here. And then we expect there to be like all this friendship and stuff that goes along, and everybody gets along, and there's nobody um, being judgmental or anything like that. And so that's what was going on with them. They had a hope in something, a hope that it would be better than it was, and then they got in a situation and it wasn't. And maybe like, you know, in church world, you know, they probably had like leaders walk out on them, um, and, um, and they were, maybe even at the beginning, it, like when you became a Christian, you're like, oh, this is so great, I feel so good, and then six months to a year later, it seems like there's this desert season kind of thing that hits you, where you no longer feel the emotions anymore, right? And so they, they're going through some kind of hopeless situation that's producing apathy, that's producing, producing apathy. And so the writer of Hebrews was writing this whole letter to address that problem. How do you maintain hope? And in, and he and it basically the whole letter crescendos. I don't. I always want to put a sh in there, but it's not right. Crescendos, okay. In Hebrews twelve eighteen through twenty nine, the threads are pulled together in this one verse. It all comes together in these few verses, verses eighteen through twenty nine. And these verses are going to tell us three things about hope, which is what is the Christian hope? What actually is the Christian hope? You know, we often some even Christians think that. The Christian hope, the future Christian hope, what is that? We just think it's a disembodied spiritual reality where we're all, we are all wearing diapers and we have harps and we sit on clouds. And that is sort of our life going forward, right? And we sing the same worship songs just for eternity, right? And that just doesn't sound like much of a heaven to most people. And so we often think that is the Christian future hope. So what actually is it? The second thing is, is there, for Christians, a current hope now? You know, a lot of other religions, virtually all of them, have no hope for this life. It's all about the one to come. Does Christianity say anything different? And then thirdly, how do we hold on to hope in a world that seems so broken? How do we do that? And that, this, this passage is going to answer all that. So the first thing we're going to look at is Hebrews 12, 18 through 21. Hebrews 12, 18 through 21. And I'm just going to summarize this. We'll come back to it at the end. This series of verses, it describes a time when Israel, Hebrews, faced a situation which they had faced over and over again in the Old Testament, which is the hopelessly broken situation of trying to approach God. The hopelessly broken situation of trying to approach God. And you get this mountain, and it's fiery, and it's dark, and it's gloomy, and they just, it's, it's a terrible situation. And what the writer of Hebrews says, he says, you have not come to that situation. You have not come to that place. You have come to a different place. And in verse 22, he says, on the contrary, you have come to Mount Zion, to what? The city of the living God, right? And to what? Heavenly Jerusalem, right? So what is this? Well, he's saying, first of all, that hope is a place, is a place. Hope is a place for a Christian. And not just any place, but this sort of combination of these three places. And so the best way I can, I, the commentators and stuff, what they say this is talking about is the city in Revelation 21. 
that there's a city in Revelation 21. It's this bright and shining city that comes down out of heaven to earth. A city is our hope. Our city is our hope. So the Bible starts in a garden, right? But then it ends in a city. Starts in a garden, ends in a city. Now, for some of you, that's sort of frightening because you're not city people, right? Like, I moved to Nightdale to get out of the city. What is this about going back to the city? I'm not so, I'm not feeling that. You know, some of you guys just wanted to get, you know, uh, 100 acres of land out here, uh, have some kids, they build houses by yours, and then you just sit on your porch in silence, right? And that's the, that's the point, is to get away from all the people and enjoy my little, you know, community of my own kids. And if, obviously, if they want to marry, they're going to have to get out of the house and go meet some people, but they're going to bring those people back. All right, and then we're going to live in this little community. And so, um, but this city is unlike any city you've ever been to. If you're not a city person, this is the city that we're all longing for our whole life. This is the city, the bright and shining city, where heaven and earth come back together. Heaven and earth come back together. Okay, and what does that mean? Well, in the garden, heaven and earth were together. Heaven, God's realm, our realm, were together. I can't do it with this, but they were together, right? They were on top of each other, right? And God dwelled with us there. He was with us. So heaven and earth were together in the garden. That's where heaven and earth met in the garden, and that we were supposed to take that out into the rest of creation. And, but at the end of Revelation 21, it says the same thing. We'll dwell with God again in this city as the city comes down from heaven to earth. You, you catch that? That it's not as though the earth is going to blow up and it's all going to be for nothing. It's that heaven is going to invade earth. That heaven and earth are coming together. That they're amalgamating together. Right? And so this bright and shining city, this heavenly Jerusalem, is going to come down. And that means that this is representative of what God's going to do across the whole earth. That there's going to be a new Nightdale, there's going to be a new Raleigh, there's going to be a new Durham when heaven invades earth. And that the air of Eden will fill its streets. The air of peace and love and dwelling with God. Now he goes on to describe the city, the author of Hebrews he just takes a couple pieces of it, and he says, look, you have come to this city, and this city has thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, just like we were singing about this morning. What does that mean? Well, this angel assembly is the party of parties, okay? It's the Burning Man. It's the festival of festivals. It's the Burning Man is a party they do out in Nevada. It's really weird. All right, and so it's the festival of festivals. It's the wedding reception of wedding receptions. You guys have ever been to a wedding reception that was a blast? Just me. Okay, you know, good. Okay, so um, it was fun, right? You got to see your family. You got to hang out. You know, Jerry Seinfeld always jokes that weddings are super boring because you invite all the people that you would never invite to anything else to this thing. But I don't think so. I think wedding receptions could be really, really funny. So, um, and so he's talking about this assembly of angels, this community, this bright and shining community that you and I are going to be a part of. And what he goes on to say is, if you want to think, well, one way to think about it is not just a great wedding reception, but when's the last time you had a really good time hanging out with friends? Think about it. Back in your, think right now. When's the last time you had a lot of fun? All right, so to give you an example, my, <laughs> my, my, a couple of thirds, uh, Thanksgivings ago, my, fa- my family's Irish, okay? And so the police got called. I was, at my, I was cooking turkey, and then the, a couple of my relatives got in a fight, and the police got called on Thanksgiving. So that's just, 
It's just Irish Thanksgivings. Um, we don't really know how this works, you know. We're from another land, and this is, you know, they say about the Irish that all their, um, all their songs are sad, but all their wars are glad. Um, it's so true. Um, so, anyway, so they, there's a fight. And some of those people were invited to a Thanksgiving at our house this last year. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a disaster. There's just, I mean, I'm going to, my neighbors are going to be asking me the next day what was going on over there. We were selective about who we invited, but anyways, we had this thing, and we thought, it's not going to be that fun, which is just going to be a service to my family, you know, and so some of them came over, and they, and some of them are like on the verge of divorce, it's just terrible, and so we invited a handful of them who were all about on the verge of divorce, and so they all came to our house, and they had a great time, like I was blown away, I was like, As, uh, heaven's come to earth, because my gosh, this is impossible, and it was, people were smiling and laughing, no cops were called, it was just as good of a Thanksgiving as you could possibly imagine. And, um, and, and I remember um, thinking about it even the next day and sort of smiling, right? And you find yourself, you remember the laughter, you remember the food, the smells, and just the fun. And that is just a, such a foretaste, such a small representative of what it's going to be like forever. That the kind of community that we've had now is just a little bit, just a little bit. Your best day, the best uh, friend hangout you've ever had is just a taste, and that's what he's talking about here. There's going to be a bright and shining community. And then he goes on to say that there's also going to be, he says this in verse 23, you have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. Uh, real quick on this. So the firstborn, what does that mean? Well, because we're Christians, we're, fir- we're the firstborn. We're in the firstborn. We're not just the firstborn in that we've been born again. We are actually in Christ, the eternally begotten firstborn of God. And so there's this idea in the Bible that we're in union with him, that you are in Christ. Do you ever see Paul write that? In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's always saying in Christ. And there's incredible theological significance to that. Because what he's saying is that you have been united to him. And now the same love that the Father has had on his Son for all of eternity is now pointed on you as the firstborn. He loves you with the same, John 17, amount of love right now in this moment and in the future as he's loved his only son with. That's incredible. You've come to that place. That is your future. That is your future. And then it goes on to verse 23. I'm going to skip a little section and come back to it. But it says, And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, he is going to make you perfect. As one author points out about Jesus, we're going to be made like him, perfect like him. Jesus is never strong when he should be weak. He's never weak when he should be strong. He's the lion and the lamb. Despite his high claims, he's never pompous. Despite being absolutely approachable, uh, powerful, he's approachable to the weakest. He has tenderness without weakness, strength without harshness, humility without the slightest lack of confidence. All of this, and yet he is completely uh, lacking in self-absorption. And what this is saying is that he's going to make you, God's making us, one day, he's going to make us perfect like Jesus in all those ways. Don't you wish sometimes you were more humble than you are? Don't you wish you wouldn't have said what you said, you know? Don't you wish sometimes you were more courageous than you are? And he's saying, I'm going to make you into those people. I'm going to make you into those people. So it's not just a bright and shining community. It's a bright and shining you. This is the city. The city is not bright and shining because of the buildings. It's because of the people. And what are, they, what are they reflecting? Where are they getting this brightness from? Hebrews 23 through 24. You have come to God, the judge of all. 
right? Okay, think about that real quick. God, the judge of all. You know, no, not too many people get excited about God, the judge of all. That's not, you know, usually people's go-to worship song. Let's sing about God judging. That sounds awesome. Let's make that, you know, make a really cool riff. I think that's the right word. I don't even know. But anyways, let's make, let's do something cool with the idea of God the judge. But you don't see God judging here at all. In Revelation 21, you don't see God judging at that point. There's no judging going on. What is he doing at that point with the city coming down? He's not, as one person said, when God judges the world, what's he going to do? One of the things he's going to do is he's going to take out a tape recorder that you have said, you know, you've said before in your life, like, they shouldn't act that way. They shouldn't be like that. I don't know why people act that way. He's just going to take it out, and he's going to use your own words against you. He's just going to say, okay, you said that people shouldn't act like that, yet here you said that, and yet here you are doing it. And so he's going to let our own words judge us. It's one of the ways he's going to judge us. He's just going to play it back. Hey, this is what you said. You know, you, you cut somebody off in traffic. Somebody cut you off in traffic. I can't say how many times I've been like so angry and then literally within a minute or two had to do the same maneuver with my car and thought, oh, no, you know, so like, well, he I'm sure he didn't have as good of a reason. Right. Um, but anyways, God's the judge, but he's not judging here. What's he doing in Revelation 21? Well, he's wiping every tear from their eye. He's not judging. He's wiping every tear from their eye. He's dwelling with his people again. Now, we often think about dwelling with God. We might think about it as sort of boring, right, static. What's the point? I mean, but this is not that. that this dwelling with God isn't even close to something static or boring. It's dynamic. It's pulsating with life. And somebody who understood this was Jonathan Edwards, who was a famous theologian guy. And um, he says this. He says, in heaven, in eternity, we will experience ever-increasing happiness and joy. And the more happiness we experience in eternity, the greater our union will be. When that happiness is perfect, the union is perfect. And as the happiness will be ever, listen to this, ever increasing to eternity, the union will become more and more and more perfect with God. Nearer and nearer, more and more like that between the Father and the Son. That's our future. That we will continue. It's not that you get there and you got it all. Oh, I understand God's love. Great. Now what's next? It's that it will take eternity to plumb the depths of God's love. This kind of love is page-turning love. You ever read a book and you're like, oh, I just can't. Oh, my gosh, this is so good. Next page. Some of you guys haven't done that. It's because you've been on your iPhones. There's these things called books, and they're wonderful, and they've got great stories in them, and I would encourage you to get one. Um, but anyways... And so, just a page-turning book where the, the, every page is better than the one before it. And that's going to be like this love that we have forever. It's that kind of love. Ever-increasing love. It will not be that you reach a place where you're like, I got it. It'll just be growing and growing and growing and growing. It's un, unimaginable what that's going to be like. And so, then it goes on. Um, the greatest parts of this life. In other words, the greatest parts of this life. All that taken together, that city, that future hope is our, is our hope. And that is like, if you want to put it all together, it's like just the best parts of this life are but a cover on the book of the life to come. But a cover on the book of the life to come. So that means our future, our future hope is not some disembodied spiritual reality. We're playing uh, harps and diapers. I don't know. Why do you need diapers? I don't know why that's an image. But anyways, um, it's heaven invading earth. And it's going to invade. It's going to come down as a future city envelops and is enveloped, every city on earth is enveloped by the love of God into this world. And that means every community, every individual, every job, every city matters now. So, 
Raymond Brown is a famous uh, commentator. He said this. He said, what this means is that, look at, look at the way the author writes. What's he say? Does he say, you will come to this one day, or what's he say? Anyone? You, he keeps saying, you have come, right? Thank you. That was me. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you have come. You have come to it. It's not that you one day will step into it. It's that you are in it right now. You are presently, right now, in it. You have come to it. You're not, going, you're not just going to it. You've come to it. This means Christians know that the best is yet to be, but in another sense, they have arrived with their feet within the gates of this city right now. Right now. And so what this means right now for the bright and shining community that we talked about, the angels, the thousands of angels in joyful assembly, who have come to, and you've come to this church, what that's like right now is that what we see in Acts 2, they sell everything. So this morning, there's sheets under your, um, on, under your uh, seats, and we're just going to put everything on there that we're going to sell. No, I'm kidding, right? But that's what they did. They sold everything, and they had all things in common, and they were having a, a great time. And, it, and they also were full of love, and they were on mission, and people were being changed by what they were doing. And that's the community, the bright and shining community now. The angels assembly now, the, the joy, the church to come now. And how this happens in your life, in my life, how it happens now is what Hebrews 12 says. Is there's, there's a shaken, shakening that goes in our hearts. There's a shaking that happens. And so what that means, that shaking looks like here, is that iron sharpens iron. Okay, so you guys, for instance, are, are here in church, and you're, not gonna get, you're probably not going to get along with everybody, right? It's a lot like being married is being in a church, right? The person, if you're close enough with people, they're going to tell you you're wrong sometimes. And what that means is you're not supposed to run from those relationships. You're supposed to run into those relationships. You're not supposed to be, put your hand out when things get hot. But the point is, is that as you get into this community, all that sharpening that's going on here is supposed to happen. And so in this life, the hope of the next life comes through the struggle of being in community now which means you should fight for it now, which means when you get hurt in church, you should see that coming. And in some ways, that's God making you the kind of person that can be a part of this community that goes on and on forever. I can't imagine, I mean, if you've been in church long enough, you've been hurt, right? By church people, I'm sure. If you haven't, then maybe you're the one doing it. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so, um, but, um, you know, that's supposed to happen, so part of the way the hope comes into this world, you're standing in this world, the way it's starting to happen now is that you're a part of a church and it's going to hurt sometimes. All right, the other thing is that it goes on, we'll go back to the other thing that we mentioned. So we have a bright and shining community to come. We've got one now. We've also got a bright and shining um, identity, not just to come, but one right now. And we're being made that way. That's what it says. The verse says, you have come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Made perfect. You're being made perfect right now. Well, what's this like? Well, C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, God's, God's command here to make you perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make you into a creature that can obey that command to be perfect. He is making you into creatures that can obey that command. He is making good on his words. If we let God into our lives, in this life, he will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal, pulsating creatures. 
all through which such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine will be ours. We are going to be, we are becoming in this life, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. He's making you perfect right now. But how does he do this right now? Well, it comes through a lot of pain in this life. It comes through um, a lot of times putting your hope in the wrong things. I mean, how often have we put our hope in our relationships or our family or our jobs? And what God's doing when you feel the hopelessness in your heart, that's God trying to somehow remove you putting too much emphasis in the wrong things. And that's him making you perfect to where you've got your, your focus on the right thing, which is him. And so you're going to feel that. So that's, that's how the kingdom comes now. That's the hope that we have now is he's going to, through pain and suffering, make you into a community now, make you into a perfect person now, right now. The be- and that means the best father, mother, brother, uh, employee you can be is when you're most like him. And he's going to make good on his word in this life. He is making you into that now. Do you see that? Because that's, as we'll see in a second, that's what the world needs. It needs people like that. So bright and shining love, uh, for the last thing going back to, so we will have a bright and shining love of God ever increased for eternity, but we're also getting it now. And what happens now matters. So we talked about how you've come to God, the judge of all, but he comes to us like a father there, not like a judge. Why, why didn't we get judged? We'll talk about that in a second. But bright and shining love of God now. How does that come right now? Well, it often comes, again, through this combination of the other two, through suffering as an individual and suffering in your community. You know, one of the things that Adam didn't have in the garden, one of the things that Adam didn't have is he never had a bad dream. This is what I mean by that. Have you ever had a really bad, terrible dream, and you woke up, and it was like, I mean, a super vivid dream, and you woke up and you were so glad it didn't happen? You found yourself just thankful. Thank God that didn't happen. Right? Thank God that didn't happen. So, like if you've ever had a family member die in one of your dreams, you wake up and you're just so thankful for your family. Just thankful, God. Thank you that they're still here. Thank you that was just a dream. And so, in some ways, this is a little bit speculative, but the idea is that Adam never had that. That, that what we will have in eternity will be so rich. Our understanding of God's love will be so rich because it was once not there, because it was once untrue for us. So if you think about when you go into the, um, the country where there's no light pollution, and you look up, and you see the stars, and they're beautiful, and they're radiant, right? And they're shining down. The reason they look so beautiful and radiant is because of the very dark backdrop. And the darker and darker the backdrop is, the brighter and more beautiful the sky is. And so to some degree, this life and its hopelessness is that back, back, or dark backdrop. And God's love shines brighter in the midst of darkness. And you can see it more for yourself. And so the, the pain and suffering that you experience in this life now will in some ways aid you in eternity in understanding how great God's love is for you. Because somehow it's true now and it won't be true then. Somehow, because it became untrue, it'll be more rich to you. It'll be more full. So as you experience that, there's hope in that. And what is incredible about that is it gives Christians this amazing, immense, powerful life now. 
Because what does that mean? It means in this life when hopelessness happens, you can actually turn it into good. You can actually see the good in it. And you can see, just like in Jesus' death, out of a cross comes a resurrection. And out of your crosses come resurrections. Out of death comes life, just like Jesus. Out of, out of losing comes winning for eternity. Out of loss comes real gain. Out of repentance in this life, as we repent for these things, comes real power. Comes real power to see how great God's love is for us. And you're gonna carry those, you're gonna carry that in with you somehow to eternity. Because it was once true now. And you'll have a greater understanding of God's love in some ways than if you they had never been true. Do you see that? So that's how you can have hope now, as it's happening to you. Somehow God's used I don't know why it's exactly but somehow God is gonna use this for his glory. He's gonna use this so I can see just how deep and wide his love is for me and it will echo on into eternity. That's exciting. That should be exciting. So what this means, last series of points. It's not serious. Sorry, let me scratch that. <laughs> I'm scare you, some of you guys. He did, really, did he really mean six and a half hours? Um, so <laughs> thanks, man. Um, what this means is that you aren't just, you don't just have a future hope and what God's going to do. You don't just have a hope now. You're supposed to be reflectors of hope now into the world. Because you are standing between two worlds. You've got one foot in this city and one foot in the city to come. You've got, look, just as Adam walked with God in what? The dusk of the garden, right? God would appear at the cool of the day, the end of the day with him. So now you're walking with God at the dawn of a new garden as he's bringing his kingdom to bear on this earth. You're standing between the city that is to come and the city of man. The city of hope and the city of hopelessness. And you are God's agents for that hope to get into the world. You're supposed to be the one that brings it into Nightdale, brings it into Wake County. You are here for that purpose. You're here for your neighbors to see that hope eternal. And so that means, as you guys are reflecting the angels' assemblies, the joyful angel assembly, you're supposed to do that now. But how are you with your neighbors? Are you warm to your neighbors? Are you careful with them? Are you thoughtful about them? Are you thinking about them? Are you working towards their flourishing? Are you bringing God's kingdom, God's ways, God's generosity to them now, his warm fellowship? Are you embodying that? Are you being more generous? What about towards Christians? Is your heart growing kinder and warmer towards Christians? Do you find yourself having a less censorious, judgmental spirit towards weak Christians, those who fall, or those who are self-deceived? Have you been cold to anyone lately? I could definitely answer yes to a lot of this, by the way. And yet, that's what you're supposed to do when you're here, is be the kind of person that brings his kingdom to come right now on earth as it is in heaven now. What about in terms of your identity? Are you finding your identity in the Lord, or are you finding it in other things? Are you finding it in who he's making you to be? And you're, are you letting him do that in your life now? You know, one of the ways that we keep God out now in this life, keep ourselves from becoming the kind of people he wants us to be now in this life, is that we, when we're dealing with a problem, we don't turn towards him. We turn towards Netflix, right? And binge watch, you know, every possible show that we can think of. We get on our phones immediately. 
right? Like, we can't go a second without being our phones. As soon as we start to feel alone in our cars, we're grabbing our phones. Like, we would rather um, potentially hurt someone really badly than be alone for three seconds, <laughs> you know? Which is kind of sad and kind of funny, right? Because that's how we deal with what maybe the hopelessness that we begin to feel. Instead of seeing, oh, I'm hopeless because I'm trusting in this other thing, we say, oh, I'm hopeless, and so what's Ben and Jerry up to? These are ice cream makers. It's a joke. Okay. Um, <laughs> and so we, we don't go to God. We don't let the hopelessness hit our hearts enough to where we have to go on Him. We have to rely on Him. We have to go to church and pray. We have to go and get in His Word and read. We have to go back to Him and rest on Him. And that's what you're supposed to be doing now. You're supposed to be letting that identity hit you now. And so Christians ought not to be people who watch TV as much. When we watch Fox News or CNN and something terrible happens, instead of just dwelling in it, we should turn it off and go to the Scriptures and say, what does this say? About his love for me and his love for the world. What's he going to do? He's going to make all things new again. Somehow he's going to take this bad and make good out of it. Somehow. All right, and then thirdly, we're supposed to be people who are dwelling with God now. And really, you know, your worship shows you if you're doing this, how you worship. Can you worship when the music choices aren't yours? When the style of song is not yours? Whether that means being a contemporary or classic or gospel or jazz or whatever, can you do it? Because if you can't, what does that say about us? That God, I'm only going to worship you if it's in this key, you know? (laughs) Like, I only do worship for you. So who are we really worshiping? What are we really after? Are we really after the style of music, or are we after loving him? I know style of music is sort of a big thing, but look, put it just in this, this perspective. Isn't he worthy of our worship no matter what? No matter what. Can you do that? And that's how you're supposed to dwell with God right now. So are you doing that in your community? Are you doing that as an individual in terms of letting your sin, dealing with the hopelessness in the world and turning to Jesus? Are you able to truly worship him whether the music's your music or not? Are you having a sweet delight when you do that? Or has it just become a duty? Are you just filling a seat? Are you just here? You're not supposed to be. You're supposed to bring hopefulness to a hopeless world. And yet most of us, including myself, struggle with that immensely. So how do we get, how do we become people who embody hope? How do we actually get this into our hearts? We have to remember, you have to remember how you got to the mountain of hope. How you got to the mountain of hope. We didn't read this verse, but right before he says you have come to, he says you haven't come to this mountain that is set on fire that's swirling with darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of the trumpet, who people say, basically, let the rocks fall on us when they see this mountain. Moses was trembling with fear when he saw this mountain. He says, you haven't come there. What is that mountain? Well, it's the same thing that happens over and over again as the Israelites try to approach God. It's the separation between them and God. And he said, you haven't come to that mountain of fire, the wall of fire that separates you from him. You haven't come there because someone else did. Because that mountain, full of God's wrath and separation and alienation, came down on Jesus. That mountain crushed him. It is through him undergoing that hopeless mountain that you can have the mountain of hope.
from him going under all of our judgments. But you never have to. The verse talks about how we don't have the blood of Abel that cries out for our condemnation. We have the blood of Jesus, which not only cries out for our acquittal, but Jesus dripping in blood on the cross. You know what it cries out for for you and me? I love you. I love you. This is how much I love you. Don't you see it? Don't you see it? He willingly goes under the mountain of dark and gloom, of separation from God, so you and I never have to. And when that melts your heart, when you don't just know that, but you taste that, it'll change you. It'll make you want to be the kind of person that is hopeful, that does worship no matter what the music is, that wants to be the kind of person he wants you to be and lets hopelessness hit your heart so that you have to rely on that. When that happens, you'll want to be less censorious and judgmental because he's the one who could have absolutely put judgment on you but let it all fall on him. So that now when he looks at you, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, even though we're not good or faithful because on when Jesus was on the cross, he was all alone. And he didn't hear that at all. Do you see that? Is it touching your heart this morning? Let's pray that it does.